Welcome to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Maya Wolner, your podcast host. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Benoit Majerus about his recent book, From the Middle Ages to Today, Experiences and Representations of Madness in Paris, published in France under the title Du Moyen-Âge à nos jours, Experience et Représentation de la Folie à Paris, by Perigam Press in 2018. Benoit Majerus is Associate Professor of European History at the University of Luxembourg. His research interests include the social and material history of psychiatry, as well as the history of World War I and World War II. In addition to the book we will be discussing today, he has also written Among the Mad, a social history of psychiatry in the 20th century, also in French and published by the University of Rennes Press in 2013. Good afternoon, Benoit. It's great to have you on New Books in Science. Thanks for having me, Maya. So let me start by asking you, what inspired you to write this book? Uh, there are two main reasons for writing the book. The first one is quite simple. It's an editor, Peregrine Press, who is specialized in books on Paris, and uh, who several years ago had published a book entitled Crime in Paris, and no wanted something similar on, on madness. And uh, on my side, after having published the book you mentioned, uh, Among the Mad, which was a classic academic monograph, I wanted to do something that covered uh, a larger period and that also addressed a larger public. So that, that, that are the main two reasons for, for the book. Elsewhere, you've described the sections of the book as capsules, which give a sort of impressionistic overview of the ways in which the experiences and representations of madness have changed over time. How did you address the question of continuity or rupture in the period that you cover? So the, the book is divided in six larger chronological chapters. And for every chapter, there's, a, there's one clear pitch, so an, an overarching story. For example, the chapter about the Middle Ages is entitled Madness, but an object that you cannot find. But to tell this larger story, I have then chosen smaller stories that illustrate the, this pitch. And if the larger story makes sense for the for the history of, of Western Europe in general, the examples are more directly linked to the to, to the history of Paris, and that's why you sometimes have this this impression of of, of a more impressionistic um, approach, but that is linked that I have to 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 fit my Paris little stories into a larger uh, story that that is also valuable for for other parts of Europe. And why did you de- decide to select Paris as your geographical focus? And maybe you can also address the idea of madness that we sometimes have as a sort of specifically urban problem or a problem of civilization. Well, again, there's a very pragmatic answer. Uh, Perigram, the editor, publishes book about Paris. But then there's also a, a second answer that is perhaps more stimulating on the intellectual level is that Paris is a very interesting standpoint for an historian to observe the history of madness over, over time. And this is for one major reason. The city has been from the Middle Ages on a place where political, religious, economic, intellectual elites are, are, are heavily present and all these people are writing. And so um, if there are written sources, a historian can tell uh, a story. And and you have written sources on madness from the from the tenth century on, which is very early. And what is also interesting is that this production of sources never stopped till today. So for other places in Europe, you have more sources, but only for let's say the fifteenth century or the eighteenth century or something in the ninth century. But what is interesting in in Paris is that you have this continuity of of sources from the Middle Ages on. And then, as, as Paris is also an important political center, all this form of marginality, so not only um, 
madness was heavily controlled. And so you have from very early on institutions that enclose madmen, not only madmen. So you, you don't have in, in, in already this specialization, you know, in, in the 19th century, but you have institutions that that enclose marginality. And again, these institutions produce written sources, but also material sources that allows, again, new insight in how society manages uh, madness. And then um, the last interesting point is that what you mentioned is that um, from the from the 19th century on, madness is closely connected to, to the city. So uh, what is interesting in the Middle Ages, madness is more linked to, to, to a rural society, to root and not to the city. And so, for example, when the king is mad, he's coming to the city to, to calm down. And that's something for us today, it seems evident that it is the city that produces uh, madness and that is a uh, pathogenic environment. And so from, 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 for, the, for the last chapter, um, this question of uh, does the city produce madness and how does the city produce madness and why does the city produce madness is also very, very present. In your research, how did you come overcome the problem of retrospective diagnosis? Uh, I would say that that's a question I'm not so much interested in. Today, most historians would argue that retrospective diagnosis is not very, it's not an, it's not a historical question. Um, I think that psychiatric diagnosis always makes sense in a specific historical context and um, trying to apply diagnosis from today to a former historical period seems problematic to me for two reasons. First, it, it in a certain way deconceptualizes the diagnosis from today by applying it to the past. And secondly, it applies a concept to a period where it does not make sense for the contemporaries and is therefore anachronistic. And, and uh, saying that someone is schizophrenic in the 17th century by this retrospective diagnosis doesn't help me to understand what is happening in the, in the 17th century. So um, I think that most of the historians today no longer are interested in this question of retrospective diagnosis. So I was really taken by the images uh, that you included in the book, which to me are sort of a mixture of captivating, disturbing, mundane, and artistic. Um, to let the readers know what they range from there include maps, architectural drawings, religious images, photographs, administrative charts, and beyond. And so maybe you could tell me why did you feel it was important to include such a wide range of images and what motivations ultimately influenced how you selected the images that you wanted to use? So that was for me, till now I've only written books and articles where sometimes there was one or two image and mostly <laughs> something, but it, never that it was really part of of the, of the narrative and so choosing the illustrations was one of the most fascinating tasks in in making uh, the book and the reason for for this presence of images are, are manifold again paragram is an editor that really values illustrations and really puts energy and time in integrating them into a text and uh, in into a text so they are part of the story you tell it's not only to illustrate the text but they tell their own story um, a second important point is perhaps the distinction between um, the maps and the other illustrations, because the maps were produced specifically for the book, so they are in a certain way my interpretation of the past, uh, such as the text, and the other images uh, are primary sources produced by contemporaries and allows me and also uh, the readers to see which sense the contemporaries gave to, to madness. Um, and today, as I say, 
when you use images, you are often motivated by two reasons. First, there's this general idea, which is perhaps not completely right, but that's the general idea that books for a larger public should contain images because it makes the book more attractive. But images as for the historians or as sources make also sense in, in, in two, for, for two reasons, or for me. For centuries, most of the people were not able to read text. So for example, images in churches were the way how the world was explained to them. So it was a very visual culture. And um, I think that um, this, this importance of the visual culture is not only true for Middle Ages and early modern times, where people were not able to read, but it's still, or is again, value, uh, valuable today. You know, we, we look perhaps more at Instagram, or we spend more time with Instagram than with long text. And secondly, uh, images also offer um, a concentration of interpretation and sometimes tell a story more effectively than, than several lines of, of text. So um, choosing the images took at least at much, at, as much time as writing the text because the challenge was to find new images. Uh, if you look at books on madness, you always find the, the same images, often people with suede jackets, or you have these very classical images of uh, Charcot and uh, the hysteric woman in, in the side of Patriot. So the, the goal was to find for every uh, period new images that have not already been reproduced in, in, in other books. Um, it was also important to find images that tell a story, so not just to, 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 to take a picture of a famous psychiatrist, you can take one, but... There's no sense in, in taking 20 because that's that's not telling uh, a story. And then a, a last uh, thing that I find interesting is that um, when I was looking for all these images, um, I also um, experienced how much the digitalization of primary sources has completely changed the way we do research today, especially for the Middle Ages and the early modern times. We have today a very large corpus of, of sources that are available online. And even for the 19th and the 20th century, on the beginning of the 20th century, numerous newspapers and magazines are today available online and are very easy to find thanks to Gallica. So the French one have a very centralized platform of digitized sources. And so you can also, you have a very large um, source corpus where you can look into it. That was also very fascinating. I have to say, I really found the selection of images very successful, and I was impressed actually with the novelty of of the images that you included. So I think that that was that was very well done. Um, since you since you mentioned maps, um, I think I'll jump ahead to a question that I wanted to uh, also ask you, um, which is, is about maps and how they figure as such important iconographic documents within your book. Um, there are a number of them, but maybe you can select one that you think is particularly important um, and speak about it in greater detail and explain how it provides important information about the experience or representation of mental illness. So, so the maps are in this book in part because I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of geographers who can always use <laughs> use this map. And um, also because Paragram, so the editor has a real competence in map. And so I was happy to work with them together. They have people that are doing nothing else than maps the whole day. And so uh, for me, it was also an experiment. What can, what 
which stories can you tell with 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 with, with maps? And um, so there are several ones that I really like. One of my favorite one is the one dedicated to the patients of the Seine Departement. So Paris is in a larger administration that is called the Seine Departement. In 1914, so just before the World War One broke out, and um, this department, uh, the Seine Department, so Paris had a lot of of asylums that were managed by themselves. One inside in inside Paris and several around Paris. But the majority of, of uh, the inmates that came from, from Paris were spread to France and mainly for economic reasons. So um, if you put an inmate into a Paris asylum in the end of 19th century, you had to pay 2.5 francs. And if you put it in a provincial uh, asylum, you, have only, you had only to pay 1.2 francs. So um, for economic reasons, they put a lot of inmates uh, in outside of Paris. And when you put it on a map, you see that most more than half of the population was outside of Paris. And then all the question of the links you still have, can have with your friends or with your family appears in a completely different um, representation. If you read it, you say, okay, that must be difficult if, you're, if your cousin is, for example, in uh, Clermont-Ferrand and not in Paris, where his family lives or his friend lives. But if you see it on the map, it, or at least for me, it became far more evident. And especially if you see it on the map and you see how many people, so the bigger the circle is, the more people were in this uh, French department. And when you see then how many big circles are outside and very far outside of Paris, you really see the difficulties of, of this idea of keeping touch with family or friends. And you know that the, the only way to get out, or often the only way to get out of an asylum, was that family or friends were again uh, ready to take you back. And if you are like two or three hundred kilometers of, uh, away from them, it's very difficult to to keep this this contact. So um, that that is one of the maps which I really like. That's really fascinating. Um, let's get a little bit into the chapters now. Uh, in chapter one, you spend some time speaking about the figure of the court jester in the Middle Ages. The translation into English loses the reference to insanity that the French term has, le fou du roi, or the fool of the king. What does this figure reveal to us about the history of madness in the Middle Ages? So, um, le, le fou du roi, so I always stay with the French uh, word, illustrates perfectly the complicated story of madness in the, in the, uh, in the Middle Ages, where it's not clearly defined as a, as a, as a, as a topic by neither by 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 religious clergymen nor by by physicians so it's it's something that is not well defined as not as in the in, in the early modern times and so the the images we have about the middle ages are also very much influenced by the by the 19th century where, where stories on the middle ages became again very popular let's just think about victor hugo's notre dame where la, la fête des fous is a central element, and that, which later become then also a central element in in some uh, Disney uh, films. And so uh, the fou du roi was a person, and it's not clearly defined if he's really mad, but a person that is different, that lived uh, at the court in order to entertain the king or the queen or the prince or a bishop or, or rich merchant. And so they were there to, to entertain and to make... law. And the French historian uh, Bernard uh, Guenet described them, described them as Petit humain de compagnie, so as, as house pets in a certain way. So they were there like, like today we can reuse animals. Uh, one of the functions of men could be or was at that time as, as, a, house, as a house pet, so to, to entertain and to make love. 
In chapter two, you include an 1866 wood carving by Charles Larreur, which depicts an episode of the convulsionaries of Saint-Médard, dating from the 1720s and 1730s. Why was this event still memorable over 100 years later? So yeah, the, the, I'll first explain what the Confucianer uh, was. So it was a religious movement from the beginning of the 18th century where some members, not everybody, experienced convulsions. And it was very present in, in Paris. And at that time, France was in a political and religious upheaval. And so through this movement of Confucianer, several religious, theological, but also political topics were heavily discussed. And what is especially interesting for the historian of madness is that this movement printed several stories of people that experienced these convulsions. And so it's for the first time that, that the historian has a larger corpus of archives that gives us access to the voices of the madman. So beforehand and even today, often our sources are more written, they are written on the madman by physicians or by um, priests or by nurses, but seldom they are written by the madman himself. And what is interesting um, here is that we have already in the 18th century uh, that, that the voices of this madman are, are, are printed. What is also interesting is that later on, so in the 19th and the 20th century, the Confucianer proved to be a, a fascinating group for the experts of, of madness. So, for example, uh, psychiatrists working on hysteria in the end of the 19th century uh, described this convictionnaire as forerunners of the hysteric women. So they did this retrospective diagnosis. And, and they, they find that, or they found that this hysteric women had the same or similar uh, experience than the convictionnaire. And then what is interesting in the 20th century, the psychoanalysts, uh, again did a retrospective um, diagnosis by uh, saying that um, this this convictionnaire were the typical example of people that repressed uh, their feeling their feelings sorry that's really fascinating so what were some of the ways in which revolutionary madness was constructed in images during the 19th century? Yeah, so that's that was a very interesting topic to write about. In a certain way, you can interpret large part of the history of the 19th century as a way of restoring the, the order that has been severely disturbed by the French Revolution and all the other revolutions that follow in the, in the 19th century. And so saying that uh, the revolutionaries were mad was a way to disqualify them. So you could say, okay, that, that, that was madness and we should go back to an order of the 18th century. And for example, and then you have one of the examples, Théroyne de Méricourt, who was one of the few revolutionary women. She, she was also described as mad, mad as, as, as someone who, who was in favor of the revolution, but also mad that a woman should never go into politics. And, and so there was a whole narrative of arguing that, um, the only people that were in favor of revolution were uh, mad people. And at the same time, uh, you had also a narrative saying that revolution made people crazy. And so a lot of psychiatrists were writing books in the 19th century trying to demonstrate how after revolutionary events one could observe peace of madness. And again, that was an argument saying, okay, revolution is bad because revolution produced madness. So in, in, in both ways, uh, in both narratives, um, the link between madness and revolution was a way to discredit uh, revolution. 
In chapter four, you have a capsule entitled One Psychiatry at Two Speeds. Can you explain this section a little bit further for our listeners? Yeah, so this chapter tries um, to, to show that inside psychiatric institutions, class is one of the fundamental marker. It's, it's not so much about diagnosis, it's not about gender, and it's not about class. So the typical image we have about asylums are these very large asylums, but they were mo mostly for, for, very, for poor inmates that could not pay um, for, 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 for medical uh, care. And inside um, these large asylums, conditions were very poor, uh, and these large institutions and the name of asylum were afflicted with, afflicted with stigma. But beside this, and in France, it's, in France, it's mainly state psychiatry, existed a network of private, smaller institutions. And they were designed, designed for families with money that wanted their family members in settings that resembled the, the bourgeois family life. So um, these institutions were built in green surroundings of Paris, often accessible by tram tramways. Uh, you had pianos, you had libraries. Um, so it, it, it was in a certain way a copy of the environment where the people were coming from. And they were not called asylums, but Maison de Santé ou Sanatorium ou Clinique Neurologique. And, and the advertisements for these institutions did not use the words of madness, but spoke rather of nervousness. So um, you had, you had at a certain way, two psychiatry. You had the psychiatry for the poor, and then you had a psychiatry for the rich. And, and I think that that's a very, very important narrative when you're speaking on, on psychiatry in the 19th and the 20th century. Yeah, I do have to say that the images of Les Maisons de Santé look rather luxurious, actually. Yeah, but there were really people, they, they had the money to pay and it was really a copy. So it, it was to reproduce um, the bourgeois environment these people know from, from their home. So throughout your book, you also include images of advertisements for psychiatric drugs. What can we learn about the tensions between the experience of mental illness and its representation by comparing, for example, these advertisements for psychopharmaceuticals and then patient accounts of taking these drugs? Did the patients experience the so-called psychopharmaceutical revolution as such? Yeah, that, that was one part of the book where I've all, also done a lot of, of research. So the, the introduction of phenoleptics is certainly one of the most researched topics on the history of psychiatry in the 20th century. And for a long time, historians reproduced the narrative of some of the psychiatrists who defined this, this introduction of neoleptics as a therapeutic revolution. But in the last 10 years, this narrative has become more complex uh, for several reasons. First, the history of psychiatric drugs and biological therapies did not start with neoleptics. So um, today there are a lot of, of research done on drugs that were already used in the 19th century, and you see that these drugs were already used on a, on a massive level in asylums. And from the 1920s on, several other biological therapies that were also defined as revolutionaries, as, as, as revolutions, were already inside the asylum, be it the insulin therapy, the electroshock therapy, or lobotomy. Today, these this therapies are like, uh, are, are no longer or are less used, but at that time, they were considered as, 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 as also as revolution. Second point that makes the, the, the narrative more complex is that not all psychiatrists did share the enthusiasm of their, their colleagues. Um, for some, um, neoleptics did not uh, work or did not work better than adult therapies. And St. Anne, which is the major, as, uh, major psychiatric hospital in, in Paris where the neoleptics were invented, 
some psychiatrists remained opposed to the new drugs for several years. Um, and other um, psychiatrists were very skeptical because they said that neuroleptics sedated the patients too much and defined neuroleptics as, as chemical lobotomy. And then uh, finally, uh, in historiography, there has been a real interest in the voices of, of, of the patients in the last 10, 20 years. And that has also changed um, the narrative because some patients welcome the new drug and, and when they get the, the new, new drug, they say, oh, we are finally cared for and there's finally a therapy. But there are also other patients that complain, uh, complain about, uh, about the drugs, about the side effects, about being too sleepy, about having skin problems. So um, in general, um, like always, when, when you have a, a broader picture, when you're not talking only about the two or three famous psychiatrists, but if you integrate... Uh, normal psychiatrists or not, not famous psychiatrists, if you include uh, nurses, if you include patients into your narrative. And so also at the sources you are looking at, the, the story becomes far more complex. So what about works of representation produced by patients themselves? Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the first International Congress of Psychiatry and the patient artworks that were put on display. And so after, very quickly after the Second World War, some French psychiatrists launched the idea of an international contest of Congress of Psychiatry. And uh, in 1915, psychiatrists from around the world, with the exception of the communist bloc, gathered in, in Paris. And uh, as it was usual, usual at that time and still today, a social program was organized for the participant. And among other events, an exposition with patient artwork was uh, put up. And artistic works by patients had already interested some psychiatrists from the end of the 19th century on. But you have really a change in, in, in that in, 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 in the interview period um, and then really after World War II. And um, so this exhibition that resembled about 300 works uh, of art greatly contributed to the legitimization of what is called today Art Brut, and which is today completely integrated into the the, the art market. Um, and uh, it's still today, uh, on the other hand, a very difficult topic, But on, because on the un, uh, there's still a discussion going on. Is it only, uh, has it only a therapeutic function? So um, making people work um, and uh, express their feelings, or is there real artistic um, uh, inspiration behind uh, this art, but so this this um, first international congress of psychiatry and the exposition that went along with this um, with this uh, congress was a very important moment of legitimization of, of of this art. Did the physicians, by chance, use the images as a way also to diagnose? Do you know anything about that? So there has been a, there has been some some projects on that uh, in Paris in the in the sixties. They tried to computerize all these images, so they ha they had a huge data bank in order to see okay, does people that have schizophrenia paint other in another way than people that um, are depressed? So there has been a lot of of. Of, of especially the 60s and the 70s trying to 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 use it as a diagnostical tool i think that today it's no longer or it's no longer used in a, in a systematic way to to establish diagnosis it's more used in at one point at one hand as as uh, a therapy as uh, and then on the other hand it's also for some it's a real uh, field of art and then uh, it goes in other direction then it's in museums it's sold um 
So how has the power of representation been harnessed by the anti-psychiatric movement and also the Mad Pride movement? Yeah, what is important about these two movements that started in, in, this, in the 60s is that for the first time, you have, or not for the first time, but uh, there was already a similar movement at, at the end of the 19th century. But you have now from the 60s on, on, on a very regular and systematic way, uh, no, not longer only um, psychiatrists or nurses that are talking about madness and that in a certain way say we are legitimate to talk about madness, but you have also patients. And um, these patients, uh, so they, they use, they, they try to invent new language to talk about it. So um, they, they, for example, they call themselves no longer patients, but for example, uh, survivors. Or um, So that, that's one part. And then on the other hand, they also sometimes do a reappropriation of language and trying to, to, to redefine words that have a negative connotation into something positive. And um, that's typical of this Mad Pride movement where they use for themselves the, the, the name or the word of mad and say, okay, we are pride of being mad and being mad is something you can be pride of. And then then they try to change uh, the, 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 the signification of, of the name. And that's something where they... they in a certain way, they, they took that over from the Black Power uh, movement where also Black was considered for a long time as something negative, and then it was in a certain way retransformed in, in something uh, positive. And that's also something. If you if you work on the history of psychiatry, what is interesting is that um, the anti-psychiatric movement or the map movement are not happening outside of, of of society. They are not only part of the history of of psychiatry, but they are also part of the history of society. And so they they are clear links to other uh, social movements such as the the Black Power movement or the gay. Uh, uh, movement where they, where they where they overtook the same manner of 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 um, slogans of of going into the streets. Um, so that's also a very interesting um, uh, point where you where you link the history of psychiatry to other uh, histories. I noticed that you included an image from the Mad Pride Parade in Paris in 2014, which features a photograph, again, of an individual dressed as a court jester. So there is also another example of a reappropriation of an image that we've already discussed today. Um, so we're sort of at the last question that I wanted to ask you, which is how I end all of my interviews. Um, and I wanted to know what was the most surprising or unusual discovery that you made while conducting research for this work? Um, so I really liked writing the chapter on kleptomanie, which was a diagnosis for bourgeois women that were stealing inside the, the, the new large Grand Magasin in Paris in the second half of the 19th century. And it was in a certain way not possible that they did it um, when they went for the society at that point, it was they could not imagine why bourgeois women would steal something, and so they had to invent a madness for them, and it was called kleptomanie. But for me, the most interesting discovery was um, the existence of a group of patients in in the sixties in in France, um, which is called méchants handicapés, which I find already a very funny name. So um, how do you? I don't know how, how you would translate that in in, in English. Um, méchant, how do you translate that in English? Um, um, well, do you mean mad people? Méchant, or, méchant or... yeah. Méchant, how do you... Those who are angry, maybe? Oh, or... Yeah, but it's also that they are not nice. You know, Méchant, it's also meaning not nice. So it's like the not nice handicapped. And I really like this um, this name, which is very radical in a, in a certain 
way, you know. And and uh, and what is interesting is that the history of this group is largely uh, unknown, and they have a very interesting. They they publish a very interesting uh, magazine where where they had very radical demands of what it would mean for them to being integrated in, into society. And so, um, yeah, I I I I really like the name of the group and also their their, their way of expressing it in in, in their in their magazine. Well, I have to say thank you so much for your time today, Benoit. It was really interesting to speak with you about your book. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you to everyone to listen who listens to New Books and Science. I'm Maya Wollner. Until next time. <laughs>